the Good Friday meeting. And of course, the question is sometimes asked, why is it called Good Friday? Why is it called Good Friday? Because it might be called Black Friday. Black Friday in the sense that it was one of the, not one of the, it was the blackest day in the whole history of the world when the blackest deed was done. So why do we call this day Good Friday? And I want to answer that question tonight by turning us to the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which reads, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is one of those verses which condenses so much of the teaching of the Bible, or if you like, it crystallizes the teaching of the Bible. It encapsulates so much of the Bible's teaching about salvation into one verse. Let me explain why that is so important practically. Quite some years ago now, I guess it's about 18, 19 years ago, when I was a pastor in Bridgend, I was away one day in Aberystwyth uh, at an EMW committee meeting. But the phone went in our house and it was a sister from one of the wards in the local hospital. And she was ringing because there was a man there in a side ward who was desperate to speak to a Christian pastor. Well, I was away, obviously, a good two hours or more away in Aberystwyth. But there was a retired pastor in our church. So my wife uh, arranged for the sister to phone him. He went down to the hospital, and this man was in a sideboard. And as soon as uh, this brother from our church walked in, this man cried out. He said, I need the mercy of God. His conscience was troubling him. He was aware that he was a dying man. And now all of his past loomed up before him. So this brother explained to him the way of salvation simply. And by the time he left, he believed that the man had come through. He called later that day and the man asked for some of the staff to come into the side ward. And he said, this man brought me the message by which I have peace. I'm forgiven. I can die in peace, and this man is now my brother. Within one or two days, he had died. What do you say to somebody who doesn't have very long to live, who wants to know the heart and the center of gravity of the good news? A verse like this, and it seems to me there are various verses scattered throughout the Bible it's almost as if God has put them there for that very purpose. That the heart of the good news can be summed up so simply and so succinctly. I want to just draw three things from this great verse tonight. The first is this, the sinless saviour. The sinless saviour. In the original, the sentence begins there. The sentence begins, he who knew no sin. And it's put at the beginning of the sentence to emphasize that, that Jesus Christ was and always will remain without sin. And it's vital that we are clear about that, that he is absolutely free of all taint of sin. Now, what does that mean in 
concrete terms. It can become a kind of a mantra. We sing, uh, I, I'm addressing, this is going to go on YouTube as well, but I'm speaking at this point to Christian people. If you're not a Christian and you're watching on YouTube, it's great to have you watching. But Christians sometimes sing this line, because the sinless Savior died. But what does that mean in concrete terms? <clears throat> because it can become just a meaningless phrase. So let me just try to unpack what that uh, means and what's involved. It means, first of all, that Jesus Christ never sinned for one nanosecond in his thought life. And our thought life is very, very important. There's a great chapter in the Old Testament of the Bible, in, in what's known as the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. And there in that chapter, God is inviting people, whoever they are, to come and freely to receive his salvation, his mercy, his deliverance. But to come to him, they have to turn from their own way. And one of the things that, that God says in that chapter is, let, let the evil person forsake their thoughts. The thought life is important. Or again, in another book of the Bible, the book of Proverbs, we read, as a person thinks, so that person is. Or again, Jesus Christ said one day, he was speaking of the heart being uh, that from which evil comes out of us. For from within, out of the heart, proceed. He lists a whole number of different sins and evil things, but amongst them all, he refers to evil thoughts. I wonder how would you feel if all of your thoughts that you've ever thought were to be put up on a screen for the whole world to see? My guess is at points we'd want to hang our heads in shame, but Jesus wouldn't have had to have done that. He never had one sinful thought. He never had a sinfully angry thought. Not all anger is sinful. We read of Jesus in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 3, he's in a synagogue and he's angry at the hardness of heart of people who don't want him to heal a needy man on the Sabbath day. And he's angry. We know that he went into the temple and he, he cleansed the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He drove people out from there. He was angry. But it's one thing to be angry, it's, a, it's another thing for that anger not to spill over into sinful anger. Someone has said it takes a very steady hand to hold a full cup, and it takes a very steady control of oneself to be angry without that anger becoming sinful. Imagine somebody gives you a litre jug and they fill it to the brim. And they say, no, you to walk a, a mile or a kilometre with that, and you must not let one drop over the top and spill. You would have very steady hands. And Jesus Christ had very steady hands. He could be righteously angry without that anger ever spilling over into that which was wrong. Now, you and I can't say that. That's not true of you and me. Again, he never had a covetous thought. We know that he grew up in a poor family. We know that because when he was a, a, a very young baby and he had to be taken to the temple and a sacrifice had to be offered, the sacrifice which Mary, his mother, and Joseph, her husband, offered 
was the kind of sacrifice that was reserved for poor people who couldn't afford a bigger sacrifice. He grew up in a poor family. He grew up in a backwater place, so much so that somebody said in the town from which he came, the town called Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He never coveted what other people had. He was never discontented and wished that he'd been brought up in a different place, perhaps in Jerusalem, the center of life in Israel. But he never had an impure thought. How relevant that is in view of what we've been hearing recently about schools now having to um, have an inquiry about sexual abuse of uh, pupils to other pupils. But I don't know what the schooling was which Jesus would have had, but I can say this, if there was a mixed school in Nazareth to which he went, every girl in that school was safe with him. Not for one nanosecond did any evil thought pass through his head. And that is an awesome thought. I have a number of grandchildren, and one of my grandsons said to me one day, Grandad, this computer game is awesome. It wasn't awesome. It's one of the most overworked words in our vocabulary at the present time. But I'll tell you something that really is awesome. Somebody who went through this world and not for one nanosecond did one evil thought pass through his mind. And not only were there no evil thoughts, but there were no evil words. People sometimes say, don't they? Oh, it's not what you say that matters, it's what you do. But that's a half-truth. There's a very real element of truth in that, that actions speak louder than words, but it's only a half-truth. Because words can cut or words can heal. Jesus said that on the last day, we will be justified or condemned by our words. He never said the wrong thing. Nor did he ever say the right thing at the wrong time or the right thing in the wrong way or the right thing for the wrong reason or with the wrong motive. His words were always just what they needed to be. And not only was his thought life sinless, not only uh, was his speech sinless, his deeds were sinless too. He never put one foot wrong. But he walked really through what I can only call was a moral and spiritual minefield. You know what a minefield is when people lay these mines and somebody puts their foot on it and they get their leg blown off. And people were out to trap Jesus. They laid so many traps to trap him in his words. And he didn't put a foot wrong. The moral and spiritual minds never went off. He knew no sin. And in fact, the flip side of that is true. He thought and he said and he did everything that he should have thought, that he should have said, that he should have done. It, you know, it's not just a negative, bland thing. How often has the Christian message been misunderstood by people? I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do the other, and that's it. But that wasn't true of Jesus. He didn't do anything sinful, yeah, but he did an awful lot that was good and right. 
He was obedient, says the Bible, so obedient that after 30 years, growing up as a child, as a teenager, working as a carpenter, carpenter come, come stonemason, probably the word means, working as a builder. After 30 years, he then is going to embark on a public ministry of preaching, teaching, healing, and God the Father can say of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 30 years, but he didn't stop there. The Bible says he was obedient. He was obedient, not just up to that point, but obedient unto death, and even the death of the cross. He didn't waver. When the going got unbelievably tough, he didn't waver. He knew no sin. His sinlessness, of course, shows up our sinfulness. It's like having a garment which you think is clean and then you put it next to a brilliantly white garment and you see how grubby it is. And sometimes we foolishly think that we're not doing too badly, thank you very much. We think like that because we compare ourselves perhaps with someone else whom we select who has failings which perhaps we don't have. But the measure by which God measures us and the standard by which he measures us and weighs us is the standard set by Jesus Christ. And if we really see what that means, we'll shrivel in the dust and know that we are sinners. And know what that man in the hospital knew, that we need the mercy of God. Have you realized that? That's our first need. Here at this time of COVID pandemic, there are great needs, great health needs. And thank God for those who, who care for them. There are great economic needs, real needs. But you know, the greatest need each one of us has, first and foremost, is the mercy of God because we've sinned. He knew no sin. Yet, he knew all about sin. He knew all about sin. How important that is, you see. Think of this COVID pandemic. It's very important that doctors and nurses who are treating people in an intensive care unit haven't got COVID. They, they can't treat them if they've got the disease. But they need to know all about it, don't they? You want a doctor, you want nurses who know what they are doing. And although Jesus Christ knew no sin, he knew and he knows all about sin. In fact, I will go so far as to say, and I haven't time to justify this statement tonight, he knows more about sin than the devil knows about it. He knows it inside out, though he's sinless himself. And there's good news in that. Let me explain what I mean. A friend of mine was preaching on one occasion, and a woman had come in, evidently a woman with quite a history and quite a past, coming to a Christian church for the first time in her life. She evidently had felt spoken to in the message. And at the end of the message, she went up to this pastor friend of mine, and she said, listen, she said, Mr. So-so, I cannot begin to tell you some of the things I've done in my life. Stop, he said. Stop, you don't have to tell me. I'm not a priest. I'm not the savior. Jesus is. You can tell him, 
And you can tell him for a number of reasons. Number one, he knows all about your past already. And however bad it is, you won't phase him if you confess it to him. Because he not only knows about your life, but he knows everything that there is to know about sin. And just as a great physician who knows everything about a disease and can treat it, he can treat you. He knew no sin. That's the first thing, the sinless saviour. Secondly, he's the sin-bearing saviour. He who knew no sin was made sin. What does that mean? The people in the church in Clutter, where this meeting is coming from, we were singing a hymn on Zoom earlier, and um, that hymn actually says Christ was made sin for us. But what does that mean? We need to be 100% crystal clear what it does not mean. It does not mean that he was made sinful. It doesn't mean that somehow sin was injected into his soul. It doesn't mean that at all. Nor does it mean that he was made to commit sin. It can mean neither of those things for two reasons. Reason number one, right at the beginning of the sentence, the emphasis is made. He knew no sin. And secondly, because this is a reference to what God did to him, God doesn't make anyone sinful. He doesn't make anyone to sin. The Bible says that he, he does not tempt anyone, still less does he make anyone sinful or make them to sin. So what does it mean when it says that he who knew no sin was made sin? It means that God the Father put him into the category of sin. God the Father treated him as he treats sin itself. What does that mean? The verse in the Bible, in what's known as the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1 and verse 13, where we read these words of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Just turn away from it. Turn his back on it. Can't look at it. And so when he made his son to be sin, when he put him into the category of sin, he turned away from him. And that's why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many years back, a Christian organization I had links with asked me to attend a meeting. It was a meeting where there'd been some tensions between some of the people involved. And there was concern that one of these people was going to intimidate others and not deal fairly. And I was charged with the task of going along, I suppose as a kind of arbitrator, to ensure that there was fair play. I had to tell the individual concerned that I would be going along. He was uh, stepping down from a position that he'd been involved in. He, he had served very faithfully and very well, and he was stepping down. And I had to tell him that I would be at this meeting. He didn't want me to be there. He realized why. I said, no, I, I've been asked to go, and I, I've got to go. There was due to be a vote of thanks given to him that night by somebody, and he then said to me, he said, if you come into this meeting, then there's to be no vote of thanks. 
that's entirely up to you. I said, if you don't want it, we want Imparis here. I said, but that's not going to stop me coming to the meeting. It's not that you're trying to manipulate me into that. After all these years you've served, you may not get a vote of thanks. That's your view. I'm coming to the meeting. Well, after lots of emails and different things, I think he got the message I was going to the meeting. His wife was there. I knew him, but I knew his wife much better. Charted with her on numerous occasions in another context. So when I got to the meeting, she was there, and I went up to her and uh, greeted her, and she immediately just turned around, turned the back of her head to me and the back of her person to me to shut me out. Well, I'm a sinner. She's a sinner. So what of it? It didn't matter. It didn't do much to me, really. What did it do to Jesus Christ, who was sinless when his holy father turned his back on him, shut him out, didn't communicate with him? He's suffering at the hands of men, remember. His disciples have forsaken him. One of them has betrayed him. The rest have forsaken him. He's being jeered at. Everybody is against him and he's alone. He might hope for help from heaven, from his heavenly father, but his heavenly father blanks him out. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he was being made sin. He wasn't crying, why, why have you forsaken me? In the way that a child may sometimes ask for an explanation. He wasn't seeking ex an explanation. It was more the cry of lament. Something terrible happens and somebody says, why? And the last thing they want is some smart aleck coming along. Oh, well, this is why this terrible thing has happened. It's not like that. It's not a request for information. It's a cry of lament. It was a cry of faith. My God, my God, he's still praying. But there's pain and there's pathos. Why have you forsaken me? The answer is that he was being made sin. Think of a garment, a woolen garment, that becomes infested with bacteria and filth and all manner of terrible things, and then that's put upon a person. It's a little bit like that. Or let me put it this way. I don't know if you're into the Guinness Book of Records. I've, I've had a number of... Uh, Annuals, and every year they bring out an annual, the Guinness Book of Records for 2000, whatever the year is. I'll never forget seeing a photograph. One year, it was an astonishing photograph. It was of a man whose entire face, apart from his eyes and his mouth, was covered with bees. And he held the world record for the maximum number of bees that were on him. Apparently, the point is, if you stay calm, the bee won't sting you. And he wasn't stung. So he's got all these bees upon him with all of the potential to be stung to death. But he wasn't stung. Now, in a very feeble way, that may illustrate what's going on at the cross. That sin in every conceivable shape and form is put upon Jesus Christ so that all that God the Father can see is sin. He's plastered in it from head to foot. But no sin was injected into his soul. 
no sin entered him. But because he's in the category of sin, because he's been made sin, God the Father turns away from him. He who knew sin was made sin for us. Tremendous statement. Because he was made sin, he was made a curse. The verse we're looking at is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. But in another of his letters, one of Paul's letters in the letter to the Galatians, he says that Christ was made a curse for us. Cursed by God because he was made sin. He's the sinless saviour, but he's the sin-bearing saviour. One, one writer once put it like this. The night before he died, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said his soul was sorrowful unto death. Let me put that into 21st century language. It's nearly killing me, he says. The grief I'm experiencing is nearly killing me. And this writer put it like this. He said, on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the debt of human sin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, God the Father presented him with a bill. This is the account. This is the day of reckoning. Tomorrow will be the day of reckoning when you are going to be put into the category of sin, when you're going to pay the debt of human sin. And when he saw the scale of it, when he saw the amount that was involved, it overwhelmed him with sorrow. And the next day, he went to the cross to pay that debt. The sinless saviour, the sin-bearing saviour. Thirdly and finally, the substitute saviour. Why did he do this? What's it all about? And it's there in these two little words. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. For us. Now, what does that mean, for us? We sometimes say, don't we, you can have a little word that has a big meaning. If. What a little word if is, what a big meaning it can have. But what a little word that is, but how it can change everything, this little word for is very important. At the very least, it means for our sake, for our benefit. But it means more than that, because back in verse 20, the same word is used in the original Greek text, and there it means on behalf of. On behalf of. We are ambassadors for Christ. We implore you on Christ's behalf. That's the word that's used here. He who made no who he who knew no sin was made sin for us on our behalf. As our representative, doing something on our behalf. You have an MP, he represents us, he goes to parliament, he speaks for us. Somebody is in a court and they have a lawyer who speaks to them. He's the representative. But he's more than the representative, isn't he? Because he's made sin. He who knew no sin stands now in the shoes of sinners. I, I sometimes illustrated it in this way. Back in the 1970s and 80s and on into the 90s, but especially the 70s and 80s, there are a number of books written by a man called John White. John White was a professor of psychiatry in Canada. He was a Briton. But uh, he'd been a medical missionary 
for many years in South America. And he tells the story in one of his books called The Cost of Commitment of what happened to him when he was a medical student. He was having to go to a, a clinic to learn about sexually transmitted diseases as part of his medical training. But on this particular day, he couldn't get there. Something happened and he couldn't go. So he had to make up the time. He had to you know, learn the ropes, as it were. And so he went in the evening when the clinic was also being held. But he said it was very different in the evening. In the morning, there were the medical students around the consultant and everything was sanitized and orderly. But he said in the night, it wasn't like that at all. And he said there was a long line of shabbily dressed men, not at all as it was in the mornings. And he made his way to the front and a big burly male nurse grabbed him by the arm and said, get to the back of the queue, son. Oh, he said, you don't understand. I I'm a medical student. That's all right, son, he said. Medical students get these diseases the same as everyone else. Get to the back of the queue and take your place. He eventually, uh, was able to explain to the nurse he was not there as a patient to be treated. He was there as part of the treatment team. But he said in those moments before he got the nurse to understand that, when the nurse thought of him and others thought of him as a man who was there to be treated with a sexually transmitted infection, he said everything within him recoiled from being viewed like that. And then he said for the first time he really grasped what was going on when Jesus was baptized? John the Baptist preached repentance. That is a message to sinners that they needed to, to turn from their sin to God. And he baptized them as an outward sign of God's inner cleansing of them. But Jesus went to John to be baptized and John is shocked. You know, I need you to baptize me, he says. What's the point of you coming to me? Because Jesus is sinless. And Jesus said, let, let, let it happen that we might fulfill all righteousness. What's he doing? He's standing in the shoes of sinners. And he stands in the shoes of sinners there as he's baptized. And then at the cross where he dies, he really is very much in the shoes of sinners. In the words of an old hymn, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. That is the heart of it. Substitution. If you remove that, you lose the entire Christian good news. You know, I, I'll never forget reading about one of the most learned men in the Christian church who's ever lived. Learned in terms of his knowledge of the Bible, in terms of his knowledge of Hebrew. He was a remarkable man. His name was John Duncan. He'd been a missionary to the Jews. He was nicknamed Rabbi Duncan. But when he was asked one day to sum up the Christian message, he took the words of a very poor woman living in a part of Africa, and she put it like this, and he said, she's got it. This is what it means. I die, or he die. He die, I no die. That's it. She wasn't about physical death. She was talking about the totality of salvation being put right with God. Either I'm going to die eternally or he must. Because Jesus is an infinite person. What happened to those hours on the cross was of eternal significance. I die or he die. He die. I no die. That's it. Substitution. It's the heart of the good news.
He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Why? That so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is so important. I said earlier that he being made sin did not mean that he was made sinful. It did not mean that he was made to commit sin. Likewise, our being made righteous here does not mean that we now do righteous things or that internally we are made righteous. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It means just as our sin was put upon him, like all those bees upon that man, but he wasn't stung, or like that filthy garment put upon him. So his righteousness, like a, a spotless garment, is put upon us. His righteousness is credited to our account. At the cross, Jesus paid a great debt, huge debt. And now God credits, God credits to those who trust Jesus the righteousness of Christ. And that means that a person for whom this is true will never be more righteous. The first day this happens to them, they're as righteous in the sight of God as they are ever, ever, ever going to be. No matter how many times they fail, no matter how many times they stumble and fall, they are righteous in Christ. Well, how says somebody? That's a bit of a shocking truth, isn't it? Because if that's true, doesn't it mean we can live, doesn't it mean that we can live as we like? It doesn't mean that. But the real Christian good news can be misunderstood in that way. And one of the tests that it is the real good news is that some people will misunderstand it in that way. That's why in one of his other letters, what's known as the letter to the Romans, having laid out this great message, Paul then stands back and pauses and he says, what should we say to these things? Shall we continue in sin so that God's grace might abound to us? God forbid, he says. Why does he say that? He says that because there were people who were saying, you know, if you believe what this man preaches, you can live as you like. Doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that because of two crucially important words. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What on earth does that mean? It means that all that Christ has done becomes ours only when we are united to him by faith. But when we are united to him by faith, yes, God credits this righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. But because we are united to him, the life of Christ also begins to enter us and flow in us to change us now on the inside so that we begin to live a new life. That is what makes us righteous before God. But it always accompanies our being put right before God. Can I illustrate it like this in a very simple way? Yeah, I've got my hand. There are two sides to it. There have to be. You can't just have one side of your hand. This side here is faith. This side here is repentance. Let me use my Bible and imagine now Jesus Christ 
How do I lay hold of Jesus Christ? Not by repentance, by faith. I can't grasp this book with the back of my hand. It must be with the palm and my fingers. But I can't do that without having the back of my hand so that all true faith is always linked with repentance. And of course, for my arm to do my hand to do that, it's linked to my arm. It's organically related, and there's a lot of other things going on. So it is with coming to God through faith in Christ. It is through faith, and it is through faith alone that we receive Christ and are declared righteous by God on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. But all true faith, all true trust in Christ, also is linked with repentance. We're not justified by our repentance. But you can't have a faith that isn't a repentant faith. One man has said they are Siamese twins. You can't separate faith and repentance. And elsewhere, Paul says, faith will work by love. The arm, organically related. So we're in Christ and we begin to live a new life. Has this happened to you? Have you begun to live a new life? That's vital, but, but, you can never come to God on the basis of how well you perform in your new life. You can only come on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. And let me close. There was a great man who lived in Scotland in the 1600s. His name was David Dixon. And he was on his deathbed. And somebody said to him, Mr. Dixon, what is your hope? How do you feel? He gave a remarkable answer, and it showed you how well he understood the good news. He said, I've taken my evil deeds and I have taken my good deeds and I have thrown them together as a heap of rubbish and I have fled from them to trust Christ. Because our good deeds will never be good enough to bring us into the presence of God. Only one thing is good enough, the righteousness of Christ. That's why it's Good Friday. He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're not joined to Jesus by faith, let me urge you tonight to do so. He welcomes him. He invites you. He commands you. And if you've come to him, rejoice. Rejoice that he who knew no sin was made sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God in him.